So we are jumping into a five-week series called I Love My Church. But here's what I want you to hear. This is not I love Northview Church. In fact, it's, it's what we would like to say is over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about some different things that if the local church possessed these things, and if this was on display through the local church, man, I bet God would look down from heaven and go, man, I love my church. This is the kind of church that we believe God is looking for in all of us. And so today I get to talk about one of those ideas, and today I'm talking about grace. So the idea of grace, if we were to define grace, grace is undeserved favor. But that's a cultural definition. We need to understand that grace was actually, it was designed by God, and therefore we need to give it a biblical definition. So the biblical definition would be more this, the free and unmerited favor of God. And as a church, today I want to talk about what it would look like if we embodied that idea of grace. If Pastor CJ were here with you this morning, here's what he would say. He would say, the church is most attractive when grace is most apparent. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to be really attractive today. Would you guys give me a little grace today? <laughs> In fact, uh, if you wouldn't do this, just go ahead and, and you can turn to your neighbor and just be like, you are so attractive today. <laughs> you see, there's like, a, there's like a single guy right now at one of our campuses, uh, probably like Purdue near Lafayette, who is like, this is my opportunity right now. It's like I, I've been, I, bet I sat next to her. I was hoping to say something. I had zero pickup lines. Now I'm going to lunch. Like this is, this is, this is good. So you are welcome, Pastor Pickup Line. You are so attractive today. Well, this is, this is it. That the church, when grace is most apparent, then the church becomes most attractive. But as I was preparing this message, well, it reminded me of a few things. So do you guys ever have that reoccurring dream when you are behind? Like when you know you aren't well enough prepared that you dream? It's like that dream where you missed all semester of class. Anybody else have that same dream? <laughs> yes? So as I was preparing for this Friday night, I, I started thinking back to college. My senior year of college, I went to Taylor University. Yay! Come on now. Marion, microsite, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, if you go to IWU, sorry you didn't get into Taylor. Um, uh, <laughs> whoops, uh, that wasn't in the notes. Uh, so, so I was a communication studies major, and for my, my major, for my senior paper, I had to write a 20-page paper at the end of the semester. And we had to pick some sort of some art or medium. We had to talk about what is the rhetoric that the artist is trying to share with his audience. And so for me, I decided I wanted to write on the band U2. I just, uh, I had spent an entire semester, I guess a J term, January, in Northern Ireland. And when I was there, I kind of got obsessed with the band. And I had to buy the album when I was in Europe because um, this All That You Can't Leave Behind album had just come out. And in the United States, the front cover of this album was the band in an in a, a airport. It was an airport in France. And on the gate, it said the gate number, uh, F22 or 23. But in Europe, they had photoshopped that out, and Bono had wanted, instead of F22 or 33, it said JE333. 
which is Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will teach you great and unspeakable things. And Bono, he, he wanted to use this album as a sh- chance to share his faith with others. And so I wanted to write on that. But senioritis had crept in real hard by that time. Like I had, I had one of the worst cases. I should have went down to the health center and been like, listen, I need some prescriptions because I got no opportunity here. Like I'm sick. So it comes to 10 p.m. the night before the paper is due. My roommate climbs up into his bed to go to sleep and I open up a blank Word document. And between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m., I crank out 25 pages of the worst paper you've ever read (laughs) on YouTube. And when I walked into that that professor at 8 a.m. that morning, I didn't even want a letter grade. Like, I didn't want an A or a B or a C. All I wanted was grace. I just wanted to show up and be like, just just write good enough on the paper and just let me go. (laughs) Like, I just know it's, I just need that. So I was thinking about that as I'm writing uh, Friday night, but then I also started thinking about, do you know what the name of the last track on that All That You Can't Leave Behind album is? It's Grace. And Bono, here were the lyrics that he wrote for that. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name, Grace. It's the name for a girl, but it's also a thought that changed the world. So Bono, in his uh, book, You Too by You Too, he kind of described and talked about grace. Now, there's some things theologically that I don't think Bono and I are on the same page on, but grace, I think he might have something here. Here's what he says. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. He had a view of karma that maybe I'm a little different than him on, okay? But he says, there is some atonement built in, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Then enters grace and turns that upside down. I love it. I'm not talking about people being graceful in their actions, but just covering the cracks. Christ's ministry really was a lot to do with pointing out how everybody is a screw-up in some shape or form. There's no way around it. But then he was to say, well... I'm going to deal with these sins for you. I will take on myself all the consequences of sin. Even if you're not religious, I think that you'd accept that there are consequences to all the mistakes we make. And so grace enters the picture to say, I'll take the blame. I'll carry the cross. It's a powerful idea. And for those of us in this room who've experienced God's grace... Goodness, we recognize we are broken people that make mistakes, but there's a powerful, loving, big God who came and he took our place. When we experience that grace, it feels good. But then here's the thing. We're talking about I love my church, but the church is not a building. The church is not an organization. The church is a body. So when I'm talking about grace, being most apparent, making the church attractive. I'm talking about us, those who have received grace, now having to be people of grace towards others. The Bible says it this way. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And because of that, right, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That was God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, when you, if you, have chosen to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you received that grace and it was placed on your life, it now becomes your responsibility to look like Jesus and to share that grace with other people. And if we were a church, a people that embodied that kind of grace, well, the church, the church would be most attractive because grace, man, it would be apparent through us. Now today, I'm gonna spend the rest of my time talking through John chapter eight. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up. We're gonna be in John chapter eight, verses eight, I'm sorry, verses two through 11. So John chapter eight, two through 11. As you're getting there, just to give you a little context, we are at a point in Jesus' ministry where Jesus is becoming increasingly popular and he is now in Jerusalem for a festival. And there is a lot of the religious elite, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the church leaders who are seeing what is happening with Jesus and they're like, this is not, this is not good. I don't like this. I don't know if it was jealousy. I don't know if it was confusion, but they were like, this is not right. And they are looking for any and every reason to get rid of this Jesus who is messing up the way they think about church. And so we jump in and we got verse two and it says this, at dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. I want to stop here with the word teach because if we're going to have a conversation on grace, we also have to have a conversation on truth because sometimes we want to lean so heavily into the conversation of grace that we end up watering down truth. And do you realize that if you take truth out of the equation, there's absolutely no reason for grace. So the less truth we speak, the less grace we can extend. And guys, we need to be a church who stands on God's word, who stands on truth. And that can be a hard thing sometimes in our culture. James, he says this, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. You see, as teachers of God's word, we are held to a higher standard because we know his word. But I'm telling you this, you want to be a part of a church that does not water down the message of God in the Bible. You want to be part of a church that says, I believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which means there is a God and I'm not him. And if God says it, then I believe it and I'm going to follow it and I'm going to do it. Because that's the kind of church that holds truth really high, but then at the same time, we better hold grace really high at the same time. But we can err. And so I want you to see the next part of the scripture. 
says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group. Now what's happening in this moment? They find this woman who is caught in the act of adultery and they make her publicly come and stand in front of a group. Truth. But do you notice what they're doing? They're humiliating her. Think about this. The woman was caught in the act of adultery, but they only brought her. Last time I checked, adultery took two people. But they only brought her. And then they made her stand there. And they said, look at her. Look what she did. They shamed her. Now, here's the thing you need to realize. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is behavior-based. Shame is identity-based. Guilt says, I did something disgusting. Shame says, I am disgusting. We are not a church about shame. Because when God created every single one of us, the Bible says that we were created in the image of God that we bear his characteristics. And if you look at the Bible, when he gets done creating everything, he says it's good. But when he gets done creating humans, he says, this is very good. And yes, we've sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We bear guilt, but we are not embodied in our sin. And then Jesus comes along and he forgives us of that sin. And when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, the Bible says we become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And God looks at you and he says, you are my child. And you need to hold grace and truth together, but do not err on the side of truth when it comes to shame. But do not err on the side of grace when it comes to truth. But we are all guilty. But watch what happens. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What would you do? What would you say? They were using this as a question, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. So they put Jesus in a tough spot here. They say, hey, Jesus, teacher, you who's teaching the law, are you going to uphold the law of Moses? Because you should. But if you tell us right now, no, don't stone her. We're going to say you're a heretic. Get out of here. You just took away from God's law. And you need to be thrown out of this temple courts. You need to be abolished. And these people should see you who free you are. You are a false teacher. Yet at the same time, the Jewish nation was actually under the control of the Roman government. And the Roman government said, no, no, we abide by our laws. And you may not enact your laws for capital punishment. It's our laws. And so if Jesus were to say, yes, we should stone her, well, then they take Jesus to the Romans and they say, this man here broke your law. He should be arrested and taken away. So Jesus, he's in a moment of stuck. And what does he do? He says, but Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. Now, I've heard this message preached before on this passage and heard people talk about what they think Jesus was writing in the ground I don't know what he was writing in the ground. I don't see anything in scripture. I just assume like he was doing like new math, you know, like I, 
He's so far ahead of his time. He's like, oh, someday I'm going to do this lattice thing that makes no sense. Uh, so I don't know what he was doing, but I know that Jesus was doing that, but I think he was teaching us a biblical principle. And here's the principle. In James, it says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And if we could do that, if we could be slow to speak so that God's righteousness could come out of us instead of the anger, man, our world would be better. You know we live in a world where that is not the norm, where division runs really deep, where social media gave people a platform that didn't earn a platform, and now they're speaking and they're sharing things. And the next thing you know, we are completely divided. We no longer look at people and say, wow, we have good people, but there's good and evil in the world. And yeah, we disagree, but it's just the, the difference. Now we say, you either agree with me and you are a good person, or you disagree with me and you are an evil person. You either agree with me and you're good, or you disagree and you're an idiot. You either agree with me and you're good, or you disagree and you're a bigot. And our problem is, we have stopped being slow to speak, and we have spoken out of turn. We have not let God speak. We have not looked at people as human beings created in the image of God who deserve an answer that is with thought and compassion and truth. So we need to be slow to speak. But then, goes on, says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any of you, one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now in this moment, they all begin to walk away. Did you notice who walked away first? The older ones. I wondered why. Well, I think there's something in that. I think the older generation might just have a little more wisdom than the younger generation. I read a book called The Dumbest Generation. If you haven't read it, it's pretty good. It talks about how it used to be that we would spend time with generations around the dinner table at nighttime. Now, we just surround ourselves with our peers, people that are like us. We're online gaming all night long. We're together after school, whatever it might be. And we don't actually get the wisdom. We've moved away from grandparents. We don't get the wisdom of another generation. And in some ways, it's causing us to not be wise. And we need to look at that older generation and say, that's the generation that gets it because that generation has lived long enough to experience the grace of God in ways that we have never experienced and they have a perspective that we'll never have. And we need to become more multi-generational. If you're a young person and you don't have a mentor in your life who's older than you, it's time because you need some wisdom poured in your life. For me, man, one of the most influential wisdom poured people in my life is my dad. So my mom and dad, they were high school sweethearts. Um, they were married right out of high school. But when my mom was a junior in high school, she bought a restaurant. Now, what kind of a bank would give a junior in high school a loan? 
That just tells you how small the town was that I grew up in. But she had a loan, and so then my parents kind of became serial entrepreneurs. They had a restaurant, and then they had a catering business, then they, they worked at like an auction house restaurant, and then they owned a laundromat, and then an ice cream shop, and a mini golf course, and apartments. And, and eventually when I was in high school, they bought a sporting goods store. And so at the sporting goods store, my brother was older than me. He was the manager. And I worked in the back on the embroidery and the screen printing. And there was this couple in our church, uh, and they were going through a really hard time. They had separated. And the husband, he had lost his job. And my parents, well, they wanted to, they wanted to show grace and to help. And so they were meeting with this couple, and my dad felt like, I need to offer this guy a job. So he offered him a job at the store doing an embroidery. And so my dad and my brother and I, we got to train him. And man, he made a lot of mistakes and he was trying to figure this thing out. And, and just the time where he finally was trained and ready to go, he comes to my dad and he's like, hey, I'm going to put in my two weeks notice. And he said, you know, there's a guy at the church. He's got the funding and I have the knowledge and we're going to start our own business. We're going to open an embroidery shop. Now, there were already two embroidery shops in this town of 4,000 people. I don't think you need three. But my dad, he showed him grace. He said, it's okay. But you know all of our clients. You know all of our pricing. Just, just don't go after our clients. Well, a week later, phone starts ringing at the shop. Hey, we just got this phone call. They said you're cheating us. They said you're unethical. They said your pricing's terrible. They said, your machines are out of date. They said, we need to switch over. And my brother and I were mad. And we had a good reputation. We knew what we could do in a small town like that. All you got to do is tell the truth about somebody, and it gets around. And in my little town, if you just tell the UPS guy at 8 a.m. by the end of the night, <laughs> everybody knows the truth. That's how it works. And I don't know how my dad knew. Maybe the UPS guy stopped by where he was. I have no idea. But he stops up at the store, and he says to my brother and I, hey, we got a family meeting tonight, 7 p.m. my house. Now, I was living at home. My brother came over. We were sitting on the couch. This is the first and only family meeting my family has ever had. My dad walks into the room, and he looks at us, and he said, I just wanted to remind you of something. You're a Broadbeck, and Broadbecks never talk bad about anybody the end of the meeting. Grace. Now, my dad was also a volunteer fireman, and uh, he did it long enough that he ended up becoming the fire chief of our little town. And as it would have it, the business partner of the, the man, uh, his barn caught on fire. And after my dad retired from the fire department, our family heard a couple different times from different firefighters, hey, I want to tell you something about your dad. The night of that barn fire, I never saw your dad work harder or push us to fight more aggressively than he did that night. It's grace. Undeserved favor. But when you've experienced it in your life, you just want to share it with others. And sometimes we need to ask somebody else, tell me about the favor you've received in your life. Some of these older generations in our church. You got some wisdom and we need you to share it because we need to get more of it. But let's move on. It says, then Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. 
Well, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Here's what you need to realize. Jesus was the only one that had a rock in his hand. He was the only one that actually got to throw the rock at her because he was the only one that had no sin. Yet he didn't condemn her. But I also want you to see that her sin did not go unpunished. You see, she deserved to die for her sin. And just a short while later, Jesus, he goes and he gets on this cross. And her sin was punished. But she didn't take it. He did. And when Jesus was on that cross, he actually took your sin. And he took my sin. And he died for us. He didn't deserve it. Because he had no consequence. Because he had no sin. Yet you and I, we are broken individuals who make mistakes and fall short of the glory of God. Yet grace, free and unmerited favor, was given to us. But then he says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. Truth. He says, because you have this grace, don't stay where you are. John Piper says it this way, grace is not just forgiveness. Grace is also the empowerment to do what is right. So church, we need to be a church that understands the goodness of God, who holds the truth of God's word and says, this is how we view right, wrong, the standard of what we are trying to achieve. This is righteousness. Yet when I fall short of that righteousness, I am not shamed by my God. I am covered by the grace of my God so that I can once again come back and live a life worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Today, you're going to get a chance at all of our campuses to see people be baptized who have said, I understand the grace that I have received. I am now dead in my sin, but I'm coming alive in Christ, and I'm choosing to follow after Jesus in my heart, in my soul, in my mind. But before we get there, I can't help but think there may be some of you in this room or at one of our campuses or online that today is your day to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to invite the campus pastors to start making their way to the platforms at all the auditoriums. But as they do, I just want to make sure that I do my best to clearly share with you what that means to put your faith in Jesus. See, the Bible tells us in Romans that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. There's not one of us who is perfect. The Bible says that the wages of those sins is death. But it also says but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. The Bible says it's free, it's unmerited. It does tell us the way that we receive that salvation is to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus was Lord. And so I'm gonna at this time turn it over to our campus pastors to take this moment at your campuses from here. But for those of us here in this room, for those of you online, if today is your day, I would tell you don't wait. God's grace, it's for you now. You don't gotta get yourself perfect. You just gotta say, I got some guilt, but I am not my sin. I understand my brokenness and I need forgiveness, but I am not my sin. I wanna be a child of God. I wanna be reconciled. The Bible says we'll spend eternity with God in heaven. So if you'd bow your heads with me, there's nobody looking around the room. And like I said, there is nothing that you need to do, except I do think it takes a moment of publicly just saying, yeah, that's me. Today is my day. And so I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand on the count of three if that's you. If you are saying today I wanna... I wanna pray to receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I wanna accept that grace. Just raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. Yes, yes, yes. Good. I'm gonna pray a prayer. Just pray with me. Dear God, thank you for loving me. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. God, I admit that I have made mistakes, but I'm asking you to come right now into my life as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for the grace. Today, I'm choosing to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that we celebrate for those that prayed that prayer today.